It's time to be mindful and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our host, Natalie B. Hey guys, welcome back to the Natural Ooh. Beekeeping Corner on the Hive Jive. I am your host, Natalie B. And today I have a very special guest that you guys probably already know. But for those of you who, who don't, he, he doesn't need a whole lot of introductions, but I will still uh, let you know that Les Crowder is my friend, my mentor, my inspiration. He is uh, the, uh, the natural beekeeping expert by excellence. He wrote that book, The Tabar Beekeeping Organic Practices for Honeybee Health. And I'm very thrilled to have him in, and have his time uh, to share his expertise and his take on uh, beekeeping and how we can use uh, treatment-free as a, as the hope for uh, treatment-free beekeeping as the hope for the future of our bees and ourselves actually. So we're going to use, um, I think Les mentioned that he's got an article that he just read, uh, on the natural selection of bees for mite resistance. And, and he's going to get us started on that. And he's got a little bit of a hope in the background I can hear, <laughs> but hopefully you won't mind and, and bear with us as, uh, we're basically teaching the younger generations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, natural beekeeping in a way. So Les Crowder, thank you uh, for joining us. And I'm going to let you kind of get this podcast started today. Okay, I may try if I have to go to a different room, but um, <laughs> this is sort of impromptu. So they're here and there's nowhere else to put them. That's right. But um, they it should be mostly pretty joyful sounds. Yeah, I'm mostly um, grateful that you're on with us. So well, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I feel like this article, it was actually published in 1980, no, excuse me, in, oh, I forget now, 2020, 20, 2020. Last year. So, so last year. But um, natural selection, selective breeding, and the evolution of resistance of honeybees, Apis mellifera against Varroa. And he goes into lots of data, lots of scientific studies in a sort of a global view. And he shows that there's a lot of evidence that honeybees can and have become resistant to the varroa mite, in particular where we haven't used miticides. And that the places where the resistance is less is the places where we've been protecting bees that are not mite resistant. And I, you know, when I read this article a few months ago, I thought, you know, I almost feel like I'm, I'm going to be mainstream and I've never been mainstream before. <laughs> it feels a little bit like uh, I'm at a loss to really know what to do next. Well, and, and, and it's interesting to hear other beekeepers that have been pushing for treatments, changing their tune slightly to the, to the, to the more, um, uh, subdued or, or not as strong words and using the word sustainability more and more. I'm hearing a lot more talk about sustainability uh, when it comes to beekeeping. And I think that's part of that um, transition, that, that change. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. And the thing is, the younger generation desperately is going to be searching for that sustainability. We can talk about it like, wouldn't that be nice? 
but as we get closer and closer to real either catastrophe or hope, we have to start making choices. And the younger generation is clearly saying we have to detoxify life in general. Um, beekeeping in, you know, in my particular case, that's what I do is I keep bees. So how do I detoxify beekeeping? And then we need to detoxify the rest of agriculture and textiles, clothing, and life, you know, because we see that the toxicity that we thought we could get away with, we, we can't. It's kind of an aside, but I read an article recently where um, methylcellulose, which is basically like wood fiber, right? It's cellulose is just wood. And cellulose, by the way, is glucose, glucose or sugar molecules put together with two bonds. So wood is actually made of sugar. It's like starch, but starch is put together with one bond. It's easy to break. And so we can digest starch really well, but we can't digest wood. So they assumed, oh, this methylated cellulose, it's no big deal. We don't absorb it, so we can put it in food. And it was called an emulsifier. Now it turns out it has devastating effects, particularly in the colon, on beneficial bacteria that we have in our colon. And it directly is leading to colon cancers, um, irritable bowel syndrome. It's implicated in diabetes. And here we thought, oh, this is just something that is totally inert. We, they called it an inert, inert ingredient because it, did, it didn't get absorbed. It just was passed. But what we're finding out is that we, we really need to detoxify and watch out what we put in our mouths and, and what we breathe. And as a beekeeper, that was always first and foremost in my mind, even as a kid. When I first was confronted with antibiotics, I thought, no, that doesn't seem right. Why should I use antibiotics? Beekeepers in Egypt didn't keep bees with antibiotics. So I'm not going to either. And then I finally was, I felt sort of forced to until I read an article that said we should be breeding for disease resistance. And as soon as I read that article, I said, that's what I'm going to do. And then and I set out to breed, to breed for, in those days, it was American fowl brood that I was mainly concerned about. And to breed for resistance, which basically means breed from survivors. And, and so, so we can do that with mites too. But he, he goes on, he says, he provides evidence that um, <clears throat> the Africanized honeybees in South America and Africa, initially the varroa mite had, was present in high densities, killed large numbers of colonies, but within two years, the numbers of hives deceasing, deceased hives greatly reduced. Many colonies survived without treatment. This shows that natural selection can result in resistance in large, large panmitic populations. Panmitic meaning they're outcrossers. Honeybees are very outcrossing. They take their queen and go mate as far from the hive as possible to get her away from her brothers to keep from inbreeding. And that's, so once those genes get out a little ways out, they can spread continentally amazingly quickly. Mm -hmm. because of the way bees would like to breed. 
when we breed them with artificial insemination and enclosed populations, we try to force them to be more of an inbreeder. But bees' natural nature is to be outcrossers and breed with distant drones and many drones. And there's get, a reason for that, right? It's because they get uh, genetic diversity and, and strength from that, uh, and, and as opposed to that inbreeding that you're talking about that's going to bring uh, depression uh, of the genes and, and just kind of weaker populations. Absolutely, yeah. So that diversity brings in... Bigger. Yeah, lots of... Hybrid bigger. <laughs> lots of bees have the same mother but different fathers and they're genetically distinct. And that makes them genetically better at certain jobs. And they, so they're able to be specialized and fill in all the niches uh, that are needed. Whereas when you inbreed, you may not get as good of nurse bees or as good of <laughs> wax miller bees. And the colony is much at disadvantage because of their inbreeding. Right. It's kind of like I equate that to not having as many tools in your in your toolbox when you're inbred, you have smaller um, differences between bees and they don't have all the tools that they need, all the various skills that the subfamilies may have to faster and better adapt to the changes in their environment, whether it be forage changes or weather for, uh, changes or even disease and immunity. They don't have all the, the tools that they need to fight those as well, whether, uh, whereas when you've got hybrid vigor, you have that diversity of skills and, and all those tools in the toolbox that allow them to be more uh, adaptable in a way, right? Right, so that's a really good way to put it because like if you have your toolbox and you didn't put a hammer in there, mm -hmm. the, when you come to the situation where the hammer would be the quickest, most efficient way to do it, but you just can't do that. You're you gonna take your, rock, your screwdriver. You have, yeah, I've done the rock. <laughs> yeah. A rock and a screwdriver, you know, you do your best, but you're greatly handicapped. Right. And if ever there was a time when we need bees to be on their game at the top notch and ready for change, it's now because the weather patterns are changing uh, along with everything else. Mm -hmm. So we have all the pollution and the contamination nipping at our heels. And then we have the weather patterns changing. So honeybees have to be extremely adaptable right now. Mm -hmm. So that's where that matters. And, and before we go any further, Les, I want to remind people we are basing our talks in actual scientific research. I know we do tend to get on our soapbox and um, we try to keep the natural beekeeping corner a little bit more, um, you know, um, middle of the road and understanding that not everybody <clears throat> has the options for them to not treat or do not want to or want to keep treating their bees. However, what we want to do in this natural beekeeping corner, especially when I have you on uh, and have the opportunity to discuss with somebody that does it day in and day out, uh, and I do that with you as well, but you have that perspective over the last 35 years or so of doing it day in and day out. And I want to provide people with a different perspective because a lot of the talk out there is talking about uh, treatments and or treating as we develop system sustainability um, and 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 that's another thing that I want to discuss a little bit further is how can we talk about sustainability if we're treating and not giving the bees 
the opportunity to develop their own defenses. And I think that's part of what you're talking about here in this article. And that's why I wanted you to uh, bring this up today. I, I realize that we're, we're a little bit less mainstream uh, than what the hive dive usually does. But to your point, things are changing and it is becoming more mainstream. And I think that by discussing all this, we bring a different perspective and we give people more tools and with more food for thought as to why this works and how to make it work for themselves. So with that being said, um, I appreciate you bringing up this, uh, this article. What else can you, can you tell us about what that implies concretely? Well, he concretely shows that the reason we need miticides in the United States is mainly because we've been using miticides. We have been breeding bees that are miticide dependent. Mm -hmm. We used to breed bees that were antibiotic dependent until fairly recently. It was most of your bee books said, give your bees antibiotics all winter to prevent a disease in the summer. Mm -hmm. Now, medically speaking, that made no sense whatsoever. In other words, you don't give people antibiotics in anticipation that they might fend off. Yeah, it doesn't fend off disease in the future. If anything, it decreases your autoimmune system in honeybees. The antibiotic used up enzymes that honeybees use to detoxify themselves. And then when they got tox toxic inputs from the environment, they didn't have those enzymes because we used them up with the antibiotic. So it, it was not doing the bees a favor. And now we finally realized, no, you shouldn't use antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's where I did become mainstream. For 30 years, I kept saying we shouldn't be using antibiotics. And people literally called me a communist <laughs> for saying that. And now nobody, you're supposed to get in a prescription to get, uh, yeah, a prescription to get an antibiotic. And we're saying, yeah, don't use antibiotics. So I did go mainstream. And now with the miticides, it's gonna be the same thing because in the long run, you don't wanna build a, a, an insect to relationship that is dependent on a poison that we can give them over long periods of time because then we're fighting nature's resistance. When we first came out with the miticides, we came out with apistan. Fluvalinate was the, the active ingredient. And mites fairly quickly, in about five years, became completely resistant to fluvalinate. It just quit working. Then we went to kumafos, a powerful organophosphate, but we had to promise to use it as an emergency. We had to be exempt from the ban on organophosphates. They were banned because they're forever chemicals. Once they get in your body, you never get rid of them. Mm -hmm. so, Beekeepers had to promise to dispose of those strips as hazardous material, which is ridiculous. We don't even legally know how to do that half the time. And you can't afford to do it legally most of the time. You know, you put in a hazardous materials container and send it to Phoenix, Arizona to get it incinerated, which is not a good solution anyway, mm -hmm. right? Because it just puts it in the air. Hopefully it's carbon dioxide and water, but we, we, it's just a really dumb solution. So the younger generation is recognizing that we can keep dumping poison into the air and the water. We can't put much more plastic in the ocean. 
that we have to stop for our, their kids, our great-grandkids. Speaking of Speaking grandkids. Of. <laughs> but they, they do relate me to the younger generation. I look at these little girls growing up. They are facing a world that's very different. Just in the screens available to them, in the toxins available to them. You know, we come out with a constant churn of new toxins all the time. And we have to find ways to work with biology. And the way I like to put it is that we had to go through the information age. In other words, we're in that now, right? We're, we're awash in information. We're learning how to sort through it, even to use artificial intelligence to try to sort through all the information that we can't possibly view fast enough. And that's going to enable us to really get into the biological age because biology is way more complex than we realized. Mm -hmm. Like even just studying the gut microbiome, turns out there's hundreds or thousands of players with different chemical outputs that interact with each other. And there's no way we could figure that out without computers. Right. So we have, we, but now we're getting there to the, the part time when we can start working with biology and come up with biological solutions to our agricultural problems. Right, and to go back to the beekeeping industry, I would say that's why it's so important to learn about what I call, oh, I mean, what I call, what is called integrated pest management mm. and, and learn all the tools that we need uh, for ourselves to understand the biology of the honeybee, the biology of the pests and the pathogens, and, and so that we can adequately intervene before things get too serious. Uh, meaning we can uh, make sure we have the right kind of genetics, meaning we can understand and recognize the symptoms of problems early on before they set in and become uh, too serious for us to do anything about naturally, meaning knowing what kind of biological controls we can use. There's some uh, things that we can do uh, to protect our, our comb from wax moths, uh, eggs with the the BT, the Bacillus thuringiensis, which is an organism that will keep the larvae or the wax moth at bay when we store that, that, that comb out of the hive. There's uh, nematodes that can be used in the ground to control small hive beetle larvae. But most of all, I would say that understanding the biology of the honeybee, the superorganism, and the individual bees will help us really leverage uh, that knowledge and, and uh, be able to prevent the issues from setting into our colonies. And it starts with genetics. So I think that one of the most important readings that I recommend to people when they want to do uh, and, and move towards sustainable beekeeping and natural beekeeping and treatment-free beekeeping and be a better beekeeper, whether they treat or not, actually. Every beekeeper should read The Biology of the Honeybee by Winston because it's written from the perspective of a biologist, really, and from the perspective of the honeybee uh, and not from the perspective of a beekeeper. And that's that's got a lot of value because it really explains to beekeepers uh, how the superorganism functions and what makes it healthy and what's normal and, and how to leverage that in their beekeeping practices for them to prevent problems from happening in the first place. The other aspect of what you were saying is that uh, to your point with the colonies in Africa and in, in, in areas that didn't have the opportunity to use treatments 
for for the years that the the varomites kind of struck the hardest and it ended up showing a much faster evolution of the strength and the resiliency and the resistance of the bee population in the face of the mites and that's you know uh, in Af in africa and in jamaica and all the those countries and what it kurt kirk webster said and what you're saying as well is basically by um eliminating or decreasing the pressure of the pest we have really slowed down the evolution of the honeybee to develop their own defenses we've made those mites stronger and more virulent and we've uh, weakened the bees by not giving them the opportunity to develop those mechanisms on their own uh yes that would have been an investment up front for those beekeepers that had that were facing those those problems but if we had not been treating them, we would be way further along and we wouldn't have any problems with the varro mites today. Um, <clears throat> something to keep in mind. Is that kind of what uh, you're reading from that article as well? Yeah, exactly. And uh, to your point, like if, if you're a commercial beekeeper and you've got 10,000 hives on trucks mm -hmm. going to the almonds, you want to make sure that there's nothing going to interfere with you're good. You're right. Your bees are going to get inspected, and that's going to put a dollar mm -hmm. figure on how much you make, and you want that to be as high as possible. So really, they have the least ability to experiment or to breed for mite resistance. Right. Out of fear of the economics that they're in, they're they in don't tough, have time to do this. Right, and they're in very tough economic. Mm -hmm. It's not a big money making easy deal. It's a hard, hard work with lots of risk, and you could really lose everything, right? Or you can make some money. So, but we, a lot of beekeepers like myself, if I lose some bees, oh well, I'll figure other things and we'll we'll manage. I have a very tolerant wife that puts up with and helps when whenever she can. Mm -hmm. So we, we get by, but. Um, well, we're the ones that, that are doing that breeding for resistance. And let me just read the very last uh, um, sentence on this man's um, abstract. He says, in large panmitic populations, meaning outbreeding populations, selective breeding can be used to increase the level of resistance to a threshold level at which natural selection can be expected to take over. And so that's what they've proved in South America was that by not using miticides, they quickly began to help the honeybee become mite resistant on its own. And then natural selection took over. Mm -hmm. And it also means we have to know the biology of the mite. We need to know exactly. biology. And the, the biology of the mite is that it could reproduce very fast. Napa serrana, it had to reproduce very fast because it had precious little opportunity. It could only breed in the very infrequent drones that they would raise mm -hmm. during the bloom. And so they would breed at full tilt as soon as they, the mites would breed at full tilt as soon as there were some drones. And then when they made it over to Apis mellifera, they could breed in the workers. Mm -hmm. They bred at full tilt and they killed their host and they killed themselves. Right. So by learning to help mites breed for their own survival, we can tone down the, the breeding rate of the mites 
and right. increase the resistance in the honeybees, and we'll soon get a very stable population. And we have that in much of the world. So my fear of becoming mainstream yeah, is realizing itself. <laughs> it's realizing itself whether we know it or not, right? <laughs> Which is great to have you on to discuss that, actually, because you've been saying all those things for, for how, 35 years now. I mean, yeah. you've been breathing and doing day in and day out. So you're basically being, you're vindicated. <laughs> you're being vindicated. In a, in a, I, I'm just kind of like, you know, riding the wave of your teachings. Uh, so I'm not, you know, I don't take any, I don't get any credit for all the natural beekeeping talking that I've been doing, but uh, yeah. I've, I've, I've seen, I've seen you do it uh, very efficiently. And, and so I believe my yeah. eyes. <laughs> basically. Well, you're, you're the, you're a younger generation than I am. And that means that you're further in some ways. I look at it like we've kind of digging ourselves down in a hole with, poison and pollution and you're further seeing uh, starting things further down in the hole than when I was and your your generation is coming around very better and your kids and your grandkids are going to have very stark realities to deal with if they if we don't deal with it now where we have to detoxify how we live Period. So we do our share, we do our part in the try. Yeah. But the listening to the wisdom uh, of what happens in the honeybee colony and understanding exactly what makes them work and leveraging that is exactly what we're talking about. It is going to make better beekeepers out of all of us anyway. Uh, and but I think that you know some of the elements that maybe sometimes we don't think about are are very uh, practical applications of the understanding of the biology of the honeybee. And I know I've talked about it before, and you and I have discussed this before, but basically one of the big things that, that compounded the, the problems that the mites caused uh, outside of the actual uh, commercial beekeeping aspect of things and the stressors that the bees are exposed to and, and the promiscuity that are exposed to, um, there's also the fact that we're using uh, things like foundation instead of natural comb. And we mentioned, you know, under, you mentioned understanding the biology and the life cycle of the mites. And what happens is that when you do that and you look at the biology of the honeybee, you realize that by using foundation that's usually 5.4 millimeters or um, a different size, but usually too big uh, to compare to what the bees would naturally use in the colony, mm. we are actually giving the more time, we're making the, the bees bigger, but it takes longer time for them to develop when we do that. And therefore, the mite has more time under capping to reproduce and, and, and um, being able to get more mated daughters to get out of the cells. And I think that the difference um, in um, offspring generation is up to three uh, mated females that come out with the, uh, the, the mother mites. Uh, when you're using foundation and whereas when you're using natural comb, it goes down to 1.5 uh, or one. And, and so what happens is that you have a lot less explosive growth of the population of mites, which gives a bees uh, more of a chance to be exposed to the mite population and to be exposed to the viruses that they transmit and to be in a way inoculated and vaccinated in a way if you wish uh, if you will um, by the exposure to not only the mites physical pressures but also the viruses that they transmit and the stressors that they they create 
but in a way that's more manageable for the superorganism and not as damaging, allowing them to more efficiently develop those defense mechanisms without uh, falling for the mite um, overpopulation. Right, so there's something to keep in mind that natural comb, for example, is a great tool to have in your in your bag, whether you treat or not. Again, I mean, you can still treat your bees, but the more of that natural beekeeping that you do, the better off your bees are going to be in the end. Right, and we didn't realize the, the how, how big of a difference it made when that foundation was chosen. They chose the largest size that they could get mm -hmm. that they wouldn't raise drones in. And, and so it was just mainly based on bigger would be better. They could carry more nectar. Right. They're, they're a bigger bee. But it turns out that they didn't realize it had an effect on the development time mm -hmm. and that you actually wind up with fewer bees per unit of time. Right. Because you, you reduce, you increase the development, mm -hmm. the metamorphosis time. And so we didn't realize we were interfering with their biology. Right. And their strength. Right. So when when you let them build their own comb, they build a variety of cell sizes. And then they have that variety of genetics they put in those varied cell sizes. And that even more increases the by the natural biological diversity mm -hmm. of the individual bees coming out of those different cell sizes with those different genetics. And so if they're all stamped in the same cell size, you lost that um, increase in variety that, that we didn't realize. And now, now we know. And so, yeah, I totally, it's the same with back in the days of the antibiotic. Beekeepers used to brag about, I've got combs that are 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And they were sort of bragging about it. And now we know well, that's really not a good thing. Mm -hmm. Then we should be culling our comb. It's, it winds up storing toxins. It, it becomes bacteria and fungal infused in a bad way, right. and it's it's not a good thing. So well, we had to learn to color comb, and now we have to learn to let them you know have build their own cell size. I mean, a perfect example to what you just mentioned is I went to a, a hive that had the same comb for over four yeah. years that was already being produced by local beekeepers as a, a nuke that was extracted from their uh, colonies initially. And, and it's just kind of some of this comb was so dark, you couldn't see the light through it, even though there was no foundation. And the cells are looking like almost like uh, tar, tar in your lungs when you're smoking kind of a thing. And, mm -hmm. it, and the cells are getting smaller and the bees don't want to use them as much. And what the what happens is that your your bees, the, the, the cells, Wax is lipophilic, and those uh, cells that have been used for brood have layers upon layers of old cocoons and feces, and, and they tend to be loaded with toxins and uh, uh, basically viruses and bacteria. They're really unsanitary, and we're forcing our bees to um, raise their babies in those dirty cells. And then we wonder why the colony is showing signs of diseases, and we blame the mites. But it's not always the mice. It's, it's sometimes the unsanitary conditions in which they are thrown. Uh, and, and then um, the beekeeper that was working those bees before me 
treated the hive with formic acid and, and you know that's fine but it didn't solve the problem and the hive is still paltry and there's a failure to thrive and they're trying to raise a few babies and and it's just kind of like i don't know if they're going to make it through the winter but if they do the good part of this is that we will use that you know and, and give them new comb and entice them to grow on new comb and see if they're going to make it then because if they were if they managed to make it through under those harsh conditions which is basically harsh conditions and, and so you had those toxins and those um pesticides accumulation in the wax and then you throw in treatments that also may accumulate in the wax and in the bodies of the bees so i'm gonna i'm just kind of it's a toxic soup that we're exposing them to so right and the formic acid is also hard on the bees mm -hmm. so and it may produce a long-term effect for a while because it's a very acidic for one thing mm -hmm. i experimented with formic acid many years ago briefly when the mites first came they killed large like 98 percent of the colonies mm -hmm. and so i was trying different things and they said if formic acid was organic and i got a little bit of it in one of my eyes and i decided well it may be organic but it's terrible i mean it's fierce okay well battery acid is organic as well except yeah. that it's in concentrations that's so intense that it actually burns physically burns uh the chemical burns um right. skins and, and that chemical burns as well from those uh hyper concentrated um uh, compounds that are potentially found naturally in the the honey like uh oxalic acid but Right. not a, you know 10,000 times more concentrated is not something that is innocuous and it does take a toll on the colony absolutely and when you said some uh, that we blame the mites and so you know they we would tr then try to treat for the mites we have blamed the mites for a lot of things that were not the mites fault lately and i'm hoping that <clears throat> now that we're we're getting uh, more treatment free is getting to be more mainstream there will be we'll come to an era where we realize we've kind of gone past the the extreme of blaming the mites for everything the mites mm -hmm. are not helpful i don't love the mites yeah they I don't hate pressure. them mm -hmm. right they they serve a purpose just like wax moths serve a purpose high beetle serves a purpose and we, we just need to learn to live with them Mm -hmm. And we have to stop blaming them when we put background toxins in the environment that are bad for bees. You know, when we use um, systemic neurotoxins like neonicotinoids, mm -hmm. then, and that's bad for our bees. And then we as beekeepers add to that with other things that are poisonous enough to kill the mites mm -hmm. and hope that they don't kill the bees. Right. It's a fine line. You know, if you get a little bit more poisonous, you'll kill the bees. Mm -hmm. So you might as well say you're using an insecticide in your colony to to kill the mites. Right, which also does damage on the bees. I mean, it's the same as we do with cancer treatments. We almost right. kill the patient with the chemotherapy or kill the patient with the chemotherapy. That's true. Trying to kill the cancer cells. So we have to now we need to stop blaming the mites and start finding biological solutions and one of the big things we need to work on is pe pesticides right and, and to your point 
And to your point, if we are constantly blaming the mites and focusing only on the mites, we fail to realize that actually the, the highest uh, likelihood of problems comes from poor queens and poor nutrition and poor conditions. So we, we, we fail to see the forest behind the trees, a bit behind the tree, and we are focusing on one aspect and we're not looking at the bigger picture. And I think that's where we we tend to we probably have a great opportunity to uh, learn to be more mindful about what happens in the colony rather than focusing on the mites and blame them for everything, because that's usually a symptom of an underlying problem. And, and, and you know, in healthy, uh, diver genetically diverse uh, colonies with good nutrition and good sanitary conditions, you, you know, you will have mites as well, except that they are not going to take the toll that they do otherwise. And so I really believe that mites are a problem, but just like wax moths and small hive beetles, they're a symptom of an underlying problem that if you don't fix that problem, no amount of treatment that you put into your hives is going to fix your colony long term. And it's not going to be sustainable and it's not going to be um, ever resolved. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Right. You know, I, I look at these things and it's sometimes easy to get uh, kind of depressed. You know, global warming, the big plastic continent out in the Pacific Ocean and all the plastic in the world and all this stuff. And it's easy to get like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's, it's kind of getting heavy. Children and grandchildren. <clears throat> yeah. But then I see that that plastic is amassing a whole variety of natural creatures that are attaching to it and mm -hmm. i i feel like nature will overcome and nature is more powerful than we give her credit for mm -hmm. and that we have the most fun and make money and and live in abundance when we work with nature instead of fighting nature with poison and we have only really started using these extremes of pesticides since the 1940s, and where I and think it's, that it's been an experiment that we've already seen. Nobody right. says you can be Republican or Democrat, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, whatever. Everybody agrees the world is toxic enough. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to say let's toxify the world a lot more because there's plenty of room for it. And so we we are all going to work on this, and I have a lot of hope that that we're going to do a good job. Right. And to your point, we have real life experiments. We've seen what 40 years of treatments has done and how far it's taken us, meaning yeah. not very far. And then we've seen what not treating at all is done uh, and how yeah. much faster and how much more resilient and stronger the bees are when they haven't had. So we, there's already proof and evidence uh, that one approach has worked better than the other. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, with that being said, Les, I, I just want to, I will leave you the last word. I like to do that because you, you're, um, it's a treat to have you on, but I want to thank our listeners and if, uh, I want to remind them that if they have any questions, they can get a hold of us at Be Mindful Honey Farms. Uh, we do do a chat with the mindful beekeepers, you and I, every Thursday from 5 to 6 Central Standard Time in the U.S., and you can follow us on Instagram at uh, Be Mindful Honey Farms and watch all the past recordings. We talk a lot about this kind of stuff and, and you can ask your questions 
Uh, you can send us your questions either for that or for the next Natural Beekeeping Corners. We'll be uh, uh, thoroughly uh, delighted if we can help you answer some of your questions, if some of the stuff that we talk about uh, needs more clarification. And uh, in the meantime, I want to uh, thank Les very much so for sharing his expertise and his time. This was impromptu. I kind of uh, threw this onto him today, and I really appreciate the time uh, that you took to, to get on with me and talk about all this stuff today. So thank you very much, Les, and you guys, I will talk to you uh, next time. Les? Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. I'm happy. I'm always happy to talk about let's not poison our bees and let's find ways to get keep them alive without poison. They can live without us. We can't live without them, really. I don't want to try because I love fruits and vegetables. And someday I want to talk about how honeybees are such important pollinators of particularly trees, maybe the only real good pollinators of large flowering trees. But um, yeah, we, we just don't give up the faith. Try non-toxic living and particularly non-toxic beekeeping. It can be done. And um, it's been good talking to everybody. See y'all later. Thank you. You guys be mindful. See you next month. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>